Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Well, good morning, Mike. Good morning. So this morning, uh, I'd like to kind of pick your brain how you understand the state of things. Uh, you know, one one thing I can speak to, I know I know people personally in this camp, um, but I, I'd, I'd like to just yeah hear hear your take on it but um this this idea of of being like anti-vaccine um it seems to be i I get to one extent on the one hand there's there's maybe a a a a lack of science that people are hesitant about um so, so that sort of makes sense but that doesn't seem to be the overarching narrative of of what you you kind of the primary driving force for being anti and the primary seems to be this sort of antitrust or suspicious nature. Um, I, I, I'm curious why, why you think we're here and I don't know. How do you, how do you make sense of that? Um, uh, yeah, I, I'm struggling to, to fully see how we, we hold that fabric together as we move forward. So how do you make sense of that? Yeah, <clears throat> well, it's a good question. I, I was, uh, the best uh, it came to me in this way um so i was born in 1954 the year that the sock vaccine uh, the inoculation began and there was really no widespread uh, resistance like none that i can find in uh, history everyone uh, wanted to get vaccinated and i asked myself so what what changed between 1954 and 2021 and um so i've, I've got some ideas on that and I think uh, not much, not much yeah. is different. The ideas on everything, but they're probably worthless. But here we go. <laughs> so, uh, yes, for listeners, first of all, 1954, not 1854. <laughs> uh, when I say I played college football, you know, they imagine did you have leather helmets or did you have face masks back then? <laughs> and <laughs> so. Sock vaccine. Do you even know what the sock vaccine is? No, I do not. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Maybe it was 18. <laughs> uh, FDR. Why was he in a wheelchair? Uh, polio? Well, yes, polio. And uh, polio was, uh, it was a blight. They didn't know, for, in many cases, they, it, it was frightening because it often was in the summer, there would be epidemics of it. And for many, um, you ended up in an iron lung. Familiar with that? No. An iron lung. Imagine yourself in a uh, coffin where your head sticks out because the uh, it is an, a machine that operates your lungs so you don't die and you'll spend the rest of your life there. Oh my gosh. So you can see why the fear of polio and the, for FDR, who was very robust, uh, athletic. It was in the summer. He had been swimming. Um, probably some kind of a bug that came through that. But anyway, when he woke up in the morning, he couldn't feel his legs, couldn't move his legs. And uh, for the rest of his life, he was paralyzed. 
so that's polio. And of course, there was uh, efforts to eradicate polio. And in, uh, 19, in, eight, in 1954, actually uh, seven months before I was born, so about February, uh, children from a school in Pittsburgh, an uh, elementary school in Pittsburgh, received the first injections of the uh, polio vaccine, which was developed. The first one was by Dr. Jonas Salk, S-A-L-K, so it was called the Salk vaccine. And uh, the initial success rate was uh, very impressive, about 60 to 70 percent. And, uh, and the inoculations continued unabated, even when there was a sudden outbreak. About 200 cases seemed to have actually caused polio. Uh, the problem was a faulty batch. They improved production and uh, vaccinations continued. Again, just no resistance. People said, no one's saying, I'm not going to get. And this thing could kill you, just like COVID-19. So about a year later, then by August uh, 1955, I think 4 million shots have been given. And the uh, cases dropped from uh, 14,000, roughly, or 15,000 cases of polio in 55 to 5,000 in 56 to virtually zero by 1959. And today, the World Health Organization says polio cases have been reduced 99% worldwide. It's only, in fact, in the developing world that you see cases of polio. And in some places in the world, with some resistance, you're actually seeing a slight resurgence in some areas. But that's why you've grown up with no thought of polio. But believe me, my parents did. Wow. And it was serious. So what happened? Well, I think that the answer isn't that simple. You actually have to go back to the first pilgrims that came to our country, a fascinating book by a British historian. Um, his name is Jeffrey Hodgson. Hodgson. It's called A Great and Godly Adventure, The Pilgrims and the Myth of the First Thanksgiving. And his point was, in a nutshell, that the first colonists came here to be left alone. Hmm. What, what do they mean? Uh, get out of my business. Yeah. And coming to this colony, uh, this land, was a great way to get to be left alone. <laughs> yeah. And so once you have this sort of, I call it a seedbed of stubborn independence and just wanting to have an undisturbed life, I want to live my life the way I want to live my life. Get away from me. Now, there's a lot of high-minded people write a lot about City Seven Hill and, and the Puritans and the rest, but even the Puritans, just wanted to be left alone by the Church of England. They wanted to reform it by completely getting away from it and then planting something that they felt would be, as Jerusalem was supposed to be, this uh, light to the world that people would be attracted to. And of course, that experiment started to fall apart rather quickly, but it, it had noble intentions. My point is that if you then track this sort of what I call this seed belt, that is in all 13 types of experiments that came this way, 13 colonies, by the way, is you had you know, Episcopalians in Virginia and so on and so forth, uh, Presbyterians down in Georgia, or Georgia, as they say. You have, the, all this is, it's there and it's, it's largely dormant. I think it's the second great awakening. So now you have to run up a uh, uh, hundred or 200 years, rather, uh, late 1700s, early 1800s. And you have 
a stirring of this seedbed of this stubborn independence and suspicion toward institutions and traditions and so on and so forth. And the second great awakening is what gives us an evangelical form of Christianity that is suspicious of institutional authority and traditions. And in fact, by the mid-1800s, this is the predominant faith traditions. This encapsulates the predominant and largest faith traditions, the chief of which was uh, Disciples of Christ and Methodists. And it's well-known Campbell, who was head of the Disciples of Christ, essentially said that if I have a Bible, the Holy Spirit, and a brain, then no authority, religious or otherwise, can influence my beliefs. I'm going to believe what I believe because I have a Bible, the Holy Spirit, and I have a brain. Hit pause here right now. So here I've run you up now to the mid-1800s. Any questions on that? Just that the Second Great Awakening, this this wave of evangelicalism, um, is it is it the like where's the root of that that stubborn individualism? Is that is that the pre-existing? Well, I think it goes all the way back to day one with the first. Hmm. It's it's just in the soil. So so that stubborn individualism kind of mixed with this evangelicalism. Yeah. The okay. that came out, a, a fervency. Uh, this is when the uh, uh, a new type of use of the word evangelical. Evangelical, uh, we know from the uh, church fathers, from Irenaeus, is he refers to it as the uh, apostolic teaching. The uh, it was the, the evangelical apostolic teaching. He said was authoritative. They were he was refuting the uh, heresies of Marcion, which is a topic that we talk about. I know every day. And uh, so all it means is to be orthodox. So when the when creedal churches uh, recite the creeds, we believe in one holy Catholic, that means universal, apostolic, that means evangelical church. The evangelists and revivalists of the Second Great Awakening co-opt that word evangelical, but bring a new meaning to it. And the meaning actually becomes... It's often called either uh, intensifying of the faith or personalizing of the faith. And hence you have evangelicals tend to uh, really uh, highly value fervency. Uh, I think it's where it gave rise to it in the 1980s, the word passion, which originally meant suffering. And now it meant just really, really deeply devoted, excited, um, passionate. Uh, so they, they, they redefined evangelical. And this evangelicalism is uh, fervency. It is, uh, but it's, it's suspicious just as the first in terms of wanting to be left alone by what they call, were often called the old lights. And the old lights had traditional services and traditional structures and recited creeds and read from books and sang the same hymns. And the revivalists wanted fervency. They were mostly in the hinterland at that time. That's why you see in America, if you travel into the Midwest, or even just get over the Appalachians, you start well, even getting into rural areas here in Maryland, you see Methodist churches everywhere. 
They were the circuit riders. And they really weren't even necessarily interested in starting a church, but they eventually did. And you have the Baptist traditions, and you have the disciples of Christ. But it's Campbell who is the one who basically says, all you need is uh, a Bible, a brain, and the Holy Spirit. Tradition? No way. Church fathers? <laughs> now what happens is the same thing is happening with our what I call our nation's leading culture shapers, except most of them are not Christians. So there was no Bible and no Holy Spirit. They just simply said, you're right, we need a brain. So they felt no authority, and that included now religious institutions, could influence their beliefs. So increasingly, faith or no faith, Americans were by and large becoming suspicious of authority and institutions. Mm. Big rocket science to see where this thing is heading. Yeah, well, that's it's interesting to, to hear the roots go all the way back to the beginning of America this right and, and it's it's almost seems like what you're saying is it's it's just manifested itself in different ways and the latest yeah. manifestation is this uh kind of pushback against the vaccine yeah yeah I, I think I often say be honest I'm probably more American than I am Christian most of us are hmm. we don't like to think that way sure uh we like to I often joke you know, for years there's been this Acts 29 movement. And the Acts 29, which is evangelical again, makes this assumption that, um, well, the Bible ends at Acts 28, and we are on the very, we're on the very same days, we're on this uh, same bead of these chain. We're at Acts 29. Right. You go, what the heck happened between roughly 50 AD? <laughs> well, nothing. I mean, it was, it was worship of mentors in small groups. That's what we have. That's a long chapter. That's a long chapter. <laughs> yeah. So 28 chapters covers about 20 years, and but this one covers 2,000 years. But there's just this sense of this is how the first church did, so that's how we're doing it. Right. And the the um, it's astonishing, but a lot of it has to do with, again, um, Tradition's a bad word. Now, by the way, uh, this is the pot calling the kettle black. When we moved here in 1987, the first flyer we put together uh, for the church we planted, it, the phrase uh, right across the top was, uh, tired of tradition? <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. We attract the people in a uh, Moths to the flame. <laughs> now, I think it's fair to say that these things, these tender shoots were sprouting and they withered in the first half of the 20th century. Can you guess why? I mean, keeping with the metaphor or something about the roots not being as grounded, I don't know. Well, they're shallow, they hadn't deepened, but you have a depression in two world wars has a tendency mm. to rest attention and create social cohesion. Mm. And the depression was, it gutted. Now, by the way, I think in many ways it furthered some suspicion of uh, Wall Street and the rest, but yeah, people had to pull together. They didn't have a choice. And there was not a huge government safety net. 
So it wasn't waiting for an administration to cut you uh, checks. Now that didn't happen. Social Security was not enacted until 1935. And in fact, most of the government largesse, there's no evidence that in fact that, that was reviving the economy. Economy in many cases was worse in 1939 than it was in 1929. What in many ways saved Franklin Roosevelt's hide was the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And that revved the economy. And that economy then began as it revved. That was the second world war, which many would say was actually just a continuation of World War I. And you notice, by the way, in World War I, what did we experience right at the very end of World War I? A pandemic, the Spanish flu. Hmm. And there was no widespread resistance to inoculations, many of which were under the mistaken idea of what caused the flu and were of utterly no help. But you didn't have this widespread resistance. In fact, it's not until 1955 before that the stock market gets back to where it was and it crashed in 1929. So the year I was born. So my father's first 25 years was part of a national effort to rebuild the infrastructure of this country, including its mostly its economic infrastructure, brick by brick. That's why my father grew up with play it safe, conserve, be frugal, live within your means. I, as a boomer, am born with woohoo, <laughs> go for it, create, innovate, yeah, man. And, uh, 1954. So 1954, sock vaccine. And you have over the next few years, again, I can't find instances of widespread resistance to inoculation. But 1954, also a young man walks into a recording studio in Memphis. And as you know, as he lays down a few tracks, he's told, you better go back to driving a truck. Well, he didn't. His name is Elvis Presley. And if you want to know the story of Elvis Presley and what happened over the next 10 to 15 years, Louis Menand, who I've always enjoyed his book, The Metaphysical Club, on the 19th century, his new book is called The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War. I don't find that to be a particularly helpful title, but he didn't ask me, so it's his book. He can title it what he wants. <laughs> the book is essentially, it's a sprawling, sprawling landscape of post-World War II. Artists, philosophers, painters, screenwriters, media, and the overall gestalt of the entire sweep is the reviving and the nurturing and the explosion of suspicion towards authority, tradition, and I'm going to live the way I want to live. Be true to myself. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Joan Didion, her book, 1968, Slouching Toward Bethlehem. She depicts an America where disorder was its own point. 
she says. It's just throw off all the words, throw off the traditions. And if you know anything about the 1960s, free love, free this, free that. Um, John Lennon, don't trust anyone over 30. He said that when he was under 30. Uh, Timothy Leary popularized what became sort of a boomer bumper sticker, question authority. So you have this, this uh, massive um, living out of three titanic figures from the, from the 19th century, what uh, Pope John Paul actually called the masters of suspicion, Freud, Nietzsche, Darwin. Well, I'll stop you there because a lot's swirling through my head. Um, one is the... Especially since heads don't swallow. <laughs> sw swirling. <laughs> um, one, one here is... Like, I, I, I definitely sense what you're saying, which is you know, part of the root of America is the suspicion of authority. And I don't think that's... Like that's not inherently bad, or is it? Or is that what you're saying? It, oh, I think the first thing is healthy skepticism. Yeah, yeah, that's probably where I'm. I'm puts the ball in the court and the other person's court. It almost assumes you're on top of the issue. Now, suspicion is. Uh, can you imagine if you said to your wife, "I'll be home at five and she goes, "I'm suspicious of that." <laughs> Yes, yeah, I think that's that's well said. It's the it's the the extreme of the, what what ought to be a healthy skepticism. That's that's maybe a better. Lack way to put trust. It. It's a lack of trust. Right, right. And a lack of trust goes against the grain of all the way from the very beginning of Genesis, when God establishes a day is defined as evening. That's when we receive. So we open our bodies and rest, which denotes trust. And we wake for the second half, which is called morning. And we work, which we're, we're working and trusting and working out what he worked into us. The whole of creation is built around receiving, which is trust, which is confidence in God's good creation. Right. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. Now, just to speed the film up, David Brooks in 2016 wrote a good article in The Atlantic on uh, our collapsing social trust. Mm -hmm. It's worth reading, um, listeners, because he says a lot of us think the 60s was the classic boomer decade, but he says actually the high watermark was the summer of the 1990s. Uh, when everybody leaves, especially with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the rest of the walls are coming down, people are coming together, faith in individualism, individualism meant that society is going to flourish as liberty, as individuals are liberated from the shackles of institutions and are true to themselves. That's a, a summarizer's article, but it's worth reading because it's a lot of complex layers to this. But the point is, how's that worked out since? And here's how I think it's worked out. And it's worth it's worth noting before we go too far into this that, well, let me continue the train. It's worked out well for affluent boomers and Gen X since then. 
the 08 housing crisis, the widening wage disparities. Um, affluent boomers, black, white, Asian, doesn't matter, have come out relatively okay at widening wage disparities. Then you have the same with COVID-19 and, and the resulting economic collapse. Marginalized communities, however, black, white, Hispanic, have not fared well. Uh, that's important because something changed, and you can see it in the rhetoric from Martin Luther King Jr. in the 60s and shortly before his assassination with the rise of new leaders in that movement. King always appealed to the inherent image of God in every person. So there was no such thing as victims. There was no such thing as suspicion over institutions. He recognized there is strong racism in many parts of the country. But he had a dream where all God's children, and you know the famous speech in Washington. One of the first to change that was Malcolm X, among others. But their message was essentially, the system is rigged. Theirs was essentially white supremacy. Theirs was essentially, you've been screwed. But they weren't alone because there were also other voices that became what we call today the far right. The system is rigged. You've been screwed. Yeah. The underlying message in all of these, Pat, for the last 20 plus years has been don't trust the system. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I see it even in the workplace. You see a fascinating distrust of leadership. My my question would be, so that's that's the state where we're at. And I think it to, to some extent, it makes sense thinking about it from our, our faith of, well, of course, we submit to God's authority. But on earth, the closest thing we can get to that is man's authority. And so there's there's naturally this uh, this healthy skepticism, which is needed, but we, why is it we, we go so far into a deep suspicion? Well, that comes straight out of the book of Romans. I'm glad you mentioned that because I don't think that skepticism applies to that. Skepticism applies to someone, say if they've been late for dinner for five straight days, for you to, suspicion is that it's almost, uh, suspicion seals the deal. So skepticism says, uh, why would you say that, Pat? How do you know you're going to get here at five? What's going to be different this time? And if you then come back and say, <clears throat> well, I never paid attention to my uh, iPhone for the last five days, and this time we're actually going to pay attention to it. Oh, okay. And I've set my timer, and I've set my whatever. You go, oh, okay. Paul said, submit to civil authorities for conscience sake. That, my friend, is what we're talking about here. You have an American a large portion of the, percent, uh, the population has a wounded or defiled conscience. A wounded and defiled conscience is suspicious and mistrustful and distrustful of people right from the giddy-up. It could be the way they look, the color of their skin. This goes right across the boards, by the way. Um, and a, a distrust, a, a, a 
a wounded or defiled conscience does not submit to civil authorities as Paul said to do for conscience sake. People of good conscience do that. You just trust. Your default is to trust because God is in charge. It doesn't matter what the administration is. It doesn't matter if it's a liberal. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's a Democrat, Republican. You don't name call, say mean things. That's where we are today, is this distrust is spilled over into a venomous distrust, even with a vaccine that has higher success rates than the soft vaccine initially that everyone that I'm aware of trusted in 1954. Yeah. Well, what, what came to mind for me here was uh, just kind of processing through, I think a piece to this is, uh, is indeed suffering. And, and I think connects back to the bigger, the bigger picture or the, what we've talked about, in the past either you can look at that as the four chapter gospel or just the the mystical elements to the faith and in, in the enchanted background but like this this idea of well but if i do that mike someone could take advantage of me and what was that of course well, right, right and i think it's the what's the irony of that is well, did did we did we not take advantage of christ's death on the cross you know, I mean, it, of course. it's to our advantage. I think that's what grace calls it. It's right. <laughs> and so that's, I think it's that, that misperception, not to say we ought to just be doormats, but there is this tension of Christ submitted himself to something higher. Yes, it was, it was God, but it was still, he, he, he didn't have to sit in a civil trial <laughs> and, and get punished. Um, and so he did still submit to that. And, uh, it, it was, it was to our advantage. Um, that's, that's hard. It's hard to reconcile. And I think that's, that's partly, uh, we are, we are, uh, we struggle with that. Whether that's good or bad is another conversation, but, but we, well, I wish, actually, yeah. I wish we did more. I thought I wish more would struggle with it versus mm, well said. Yeah. Admit to civil authorities for conscience sake. Now, I know once we talk about conscience, we're talking about something that's essentially meaningless to most of my evangelical friends. They have, um, they have no, they've lost all of the notion of what that means regarding human nature, human responsibility, what it means to um, live and operate and flourish in God's creation, all of that. Um, so if you don't understand conscience, then then that's true. Th that's just going to be a, a meaningless phrase in the Book of Romans. It does. It does. Um, we'll close with this. Uh, you know, the older I get, the more I appreciate uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. He was a Democrat, a senator from uh, New York State, uh, active uh, active Catholic. He's the one who, after the civil rights legislation passed, wrote the Moynihan Report, 1965. I would urge listeners to Google it. It's to Lyndon Johnson. He says, now understand, now that you've given equal rights, 
there's going to be expectations of equal outcomes. We do not have the infrastructure in place to produce equal outcomes. So he warned, you're setting us up for generations to seethe and demand equal outcomes. I don't have to go very far on that to say, look at today. Second, 1969, Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote a memo to his boss-to-be, President-elect Richard Nixon. Quote, In one form or another, all of the major domestic problems facing you derive from the erosion of the authority of the institutions of American society. This is a mysterious process of which the most that can be said is that once it starts, it tends not to stop. 